Welcome to Keeping It Secure, the Hashicast show about security trends, cloud adoption challenges, and security innovation. Join your hosts, DevOps Rob and DevOps Adil, as we tackle the complexities of cloud security and industry-wide challenges. Okay, Keeping It Secure, episode nine, I believe this one is. And it's been a little while, actually, hasn't it? It's it's, it's been a busy time, and, and we haven't had the chance to record episodes, maybe for about a month now or something like that. So uh, it's good to be back. Uh, I'm joined with my co-host again, the real Batman, Adil. How you doing? Thanks, Bruce. Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks, man. Um, but yeah, you're right. For in the UK, half term just finished, so I had to take the week off for the time with the children. Um, and uh, yeah, I think. As you said, it's been a while. We've had conversations on and off between you and I, but we it's it's just about time, right? We start recording and see how we go on. So Rob, you want to you tell me who your guest is? Yeah, we've got a really, really special one today. Um, I don't know if people are aware of this really cool tool that I came across a little while ago called uh, Daytree. Um, now, what Daytree does, I'm not going to explain. I'm going to let our guest get into that as we have the conversation. Our guest will do it far more justice than I can, but it's really, really cool, super cool. Um, and I'm really, really honored to be joined by the CEO of Daytree, Shimon. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, how are you today? Hi, everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Um, it's a great sunny day out of Tel Aviv, Israel, and I'm having a blast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so, so much. So uh, tell us a bit about your your background. Like, what were you doing before you started this company? So, you know, I'm a, my background is in software development, infrastructure, DevOps. Um, I'm software development by trade, um, self-learner. And in my previous role, I was a, an engineering manager for, for a company called Iron Source. Um, it just IPO'd on the NASDAQ for $11 billion. And then it collapsed like everyone else, but it's a <laughs> but it's a media company, and I was fortunate to join. We were just thirty people, and when I left, we were a thousand. And I was responsible for all of the software development infrastructure division, so to build all of the foundations so we can actually scale and and run the company. And it was a, a really really interesting journey, in that sense. And it also got me really involved within the community. So I started a very popular AWS um, community. It's a user group, and we have more than 8,000 members. And we did more than 110 meetups. And I was actually uh, being kind enough to even be awarded as an AWS community hero. So I go to reInvent every year. And, and I really love to talk to, to the community. And I'm very much involved with the CNCF now as well. That's fantastic. And oh, and congratulations on the community hero status. That's uh, no small feat. So uh, definitely huge applause to you on that. Uh, so I guess uh, let's uh, keep with your experience a little bit. So in your previous role, I imagine you came across a lot of challenges, a lot of technical challenges, uh, more specifically, maybe even a lot of security challenges around the infrastructure that you were managing. What would you say some of these challenges were? Which were your biggest ones? Yeah, so... You know, let me set the scene for you. So it's a company. We started as 30 people and we started scaling more and more and more and more. And um, we were we were born on the cloud 
Um, everything was running in services on AWS. And then we started acquiring more companies. So all of a sudden you find yourselves with Azure and GCP and AWS and some co-location thing. And you're like, how am I developers supposed to know like five APIs of three different clouds? It's crazy. And, um, and really the, the challenge was on the one hand, you really want to, to keep stability, to keep security. You want to be the, to safeguard your production. But on the other hand, uh, this company, it's in the media space and it's a very, very competitive space and you really have to innovate fast. You have to run fast and you really want to give, you know, autonomy to developers and you want them to execute. And, you know, it's the most frustrating thing for a developer. You know, the business side is coming and saying, hey, we need this feature. And for them to say, yeah, it's ready, but we're waiting for the DevOps team to deploy it or for the operations team to go over it or for the security team to review it. And you're just like, oh my God, this is this is crazy. And and this is the point where, where you know, I, I realized we need to have, you know, security and, and DevOps practices embedded to enable our developers and not to, to be, you know, the, their obstacle. And one day... Um, we, we allowed, uh, we really allowed this uh, autonomy and and freedom, and we were using a, a Kubernetes because you know instead of learning three different APIs for Amazon and Google and Azure and so on, we just you know that's a common line Kubernetes. And one day, a developer made a misconfiguration that reached production and caused an incident. And that's okay. I make mistakes all the time. We're all human beings. It's you know it's okay. But, but I was faced with the question, like, how do I make sure that they don't make the same mistake again? And, and, and on, on the other hand, help them continue to innovate. And, you know, I, I was looking at it and I was like, what am I supposed to do? Like, we post-mortem the misconfiguration. We found the problem. And then, you know, I was very naive. I sent an email to 400 engineers. Hey, don't do this again. And you know what happened with this email? Nothing. And then I'm a community man. So I was like, okay, I made a meetup, like secure practices and, you know, development standards. And But, you know, you always have new people coming, some people offboarding, and it's just like it's it's inscalable. And this is the point where I, understand, I understood like this has to be done programmatically using automation. And we need a solution to prevent those misconfigurations from reaching production. So it sounds like this was... Uh one of the main motivators behind you starting Daytree as the company. Um, and I think it's definitely a wide scale issue that we as an industry are facing. Uh, in fact, you and I spoke briefly a couple of weeks ago and um, we talked about this source of a lot of security breaches is misconfiguration of AWS IAM policies and so on and so forth. And I think you actually pointed me to uh, a report uh, from uh, Red Hat uh, which actually backs up some of these things here. Right? How much of uh, that report, obviously the report came a lot after you, you started a company, but I'm guessing you were already thinking along these lines, but how much of that report really resonated with you when you were designing a solution to try to help uh, protect developers from themselves, right? Which is, you know, it's something I say to my wife all the time is we have to be honest about who we are. We're human, right? We are going to make mistakes, you know, uh, there's certain things that I do. I'm forgetful, for example. So I have to put systems in place to protect myself from myself, right? 
when we talk about developing software and we talk about keeping our infrastructure and our applications secure, again, we need to put in systems in place to protect ourselves from ourselves, right? So how much of the, some of the things inside this report and specifically what parts of these report do, do you think really resonated with you as you were coming up with the solution? So as you said, when we started the company, this report did not exist, but, but I, I felt it, I saw it, like it was clear that as we go, like today, we prevent misconfigurations in cloud-native workloads such as Kubernetes and other cloud-native workloads like Argo CD and, and more and more. And if you look at the philosophy that we went through in, in terms of the cloud APIs and Kubernetes and cloud-native in general, you can see that, that we're shifting into agile development, all of this, everyone, the, the listeners, they already know, you know, microservices, agile development, all the usual mumbo jumbo. But what does this really mean is that, um, let's take Kubernetes specifically, Kubernetes had to make a choice. Do we make a solution that is simple, but is limited in functionality? Or do we make a solution that is flexible, that has a lot of knobs and nods, and then you can change everything you want, but then... It's, it's not that simple. And what Kubernetes opted to do is actually choose for flexibility, which is why it is so widely adopted. You can run things on-prem, you can run it on any cloud vendor, everything is the same. It's amazing. But it was really, really clear that uh, at that point that misconfigurations and helping developers and DevOps engineers do the right things is, is a challenge because all, because all of a sudden it's like it's like being a pilot. You have so many knobs and, and, and things you need to configure that it's almost inevitable that you'll make a mistake. This is a, a, a Shimon, thanks for uh, coming on. And um, you've touched upon a number of different things, right? And essentially can open up a, a whole new different kind of worms. But it's if I was able to try and bullet point a list the number of different things that you've kind of uh, touched upon. Um, would it be fair to say, for example, training and education for developers being a primary focus would be naive uh, in the sense that thinking, oh, if we just train them and train all the developers, educate them, then that is enough or sufficient to turn this narrative around. Um because as you said, it's not sustainable. And I wholeheartedly agree. However, you know, in my observations, I see large organizations who are going full on and making those investments, which I mean, I don't dismiss the investments need to be made, but actually investments are maybe premature, i.e. thinking that it is enough and not look at those preventative controls, which leads me on to this other portion that you touched on in the, in the end, where you said that there is this balance between allowing developer flexibility and then having opinionated um, building blocks, let's just say, for at a platform level, um, which developers are to consume. And I wholeheartedly, again, agree that this is another piece that seems to be not addressed or not talked about. I, again, there seems to be this focus around, oh, in the name of good developer experience, we would allow developers the, the freedom and the choice to be able to use any tools they want to consume the platform because we have, I don't know, policy as code maybe or some kind of guardrails, um, but we won't add any other opinionation. 
but if it, uh, and they feel the the combination of education and developer flexibility is the uh, ultimate developer experience. But and uh, so I want to touch upon that. It feels though you've experienced that and realized that actually you or maybe you've bur- been burnt by that narrative and actually want to bring that back around. Is that fair to say? I think that um, you should always, of course, go and, and invest in, in education. And But, you know, if we're talking about security, there is the principle of trust but verify and verify, I guess. Um, so I, I believe in the same way. And once um, once you allow developers and, and DevOps engineers and, and people to do things, um, you want for them to, to be able to do the things easily and for the right thing to be the, the intuitive thing to, the, to do. But as systems become more complex, as we have more services, as we have more configurations, it's just becoming harder and harder. Like if you look back, um, we used to have one huge monolith with a very thin layer of configuration around it. Now we have very, very small code bases with tons of configurations around them and a lot, a lot, a lot of services there. Absolutely. And, and I, I want to actually dig deep on that piece. So a term that I've recently uh, come across by um, a managing director of CCOE of a large bank. And the, the term that he used is um, developer cognitive load. And it, it was, it, it, I never kept, I, I didn't come across that term before. And I, Thinking back, I think to myself, actually, that's that's uh, <laughs> makes it, it makes absolute sense. Why why did I not actually come across that load that that term? But cognitive load again, I feel I realized uh, and understood that providing that flexibility, so to speak, it all it does is it increases that cognitive load where they don't necessarily need to know. And if you're able to provide these kind of pre um, compliant, let's just say, a pre approved set of uh, um, deployments and, and let's use Kubernetes in the, in the example of Kubernetes maybe opinionated, opinionated helm charts that are revolving around a set of guard, guardrails maybe day trees one of those or CIS benchmarks let's just say right but having those as a set of service catalogs and you know, for our HashiCorp listeners we can sort of relate it to say Terraform modules that are backed by say Sentinel policies but the, the point is that in itself reduces the cognitive load for a developer to not be able to necessarily need to think about that. So it, it comes back to the narrative that you're trying to say, Shimon, it sounds like that what we're saying is it is not enough to even just even have guardrails. Is it not enough? Yes, we have these preventative guardrails, but we also need to ensure that we want to move the developers away from thinking about those and start really focusing on those business application piece. That, is that fair to say? I think that um, I don't know if I really want them to move away because I do want the developer to know that they need a memory limit on their workload because maybe there is a memory leak and they don't want their workload to, you know, cause a, a virtual explosion in the Kubernetes nodes. So I do want them to have that. But I totally agree with you. The cognitive load, like how am I supposed to remember all those things as a developer? Like we work with our customers and many times I see like the ops teams or security teams, they send like an email, you should use those versions and those packages and those containers. How am I supposed to remember all of that? Like, it's crazy, you know, it's absolutely crazy. So I think that a solution 
um, that, that really allows you to learn as you do, it will really be a good a good way. So like in our solution, we scan uh, YAML files or Helm charts for misconfigurations. And then in the developer workstation or CI CD, you scan a file and let's say it will fail. So the developer will see, hey, you're missing a memory limit and there is a link. How do I fix it? And then they get educated. Why is this a problem? How do I fix the problem? And then we hope in the future they won't even get to this because it's like educating inline. I think what's really interesting there is when it comes to security, I always say this, that the success of a security strategy in this kind of scenario is uh, largely based on providing a good developer experience, right? It's, it's important that developers don't have to jump through hoops and figure out too many things to be secure by default, right? So good developer experience is key to all of these things here, right? Now, what makes it challenging to deliver a good developer experience is when you're dealing with systems that are so flexible, uh, and as, as we ascertained earlier on in the conversation, uh, flexibility in a lot of cases can equal complexity, right? How do you kind of abstract away some of that complexity from the, the developer, right? Now, in the case of Daytree, I have had the, the, the pleasure of actually trying Daytree out. Um, I, I had some specific use cases um, pertaining to HashiCorp Vault uh, specifically being injected as a sidecar for our pod so we can get secrets from Vault for our workloads. Um, and there are so many different ways you can configure that, for example. But I think one of the things that I, I kind of came up through my experimentation with is the fact that though it's flexible how you can configure it by writing my own policies and saying to developers that when you configure this sidecar injector, it must be considered uh, configured a certain way. What I'm doing is I'm taking this flexible approach and I'm making it simple and I'm saying this is the opinionated way that we want to do it as an organization, right? This is a long-winded way of me asking what kind of uh, things went into your thought process when you were coming up with the developer experience uh, that Daytree offers? Um, the developer experience that I experienced when I was experimenting with your tool, what were what were the, some of the, the key motivating factors? Did you have any kind of ideas that you abandoned as well? Because I think there's a lot of lessons in abandoned ideas. Um, what, what can you tell us about that? Okay, so let me let me do you know let me do a rundown so we talked about the problem um, and and we talked about the state of kubernetes security report by red hat that shows that 60% of incidents in kubernetes and containers today are due to detected misconfigurations this is not me saying this is red hat saying so and it's much much more than someone uh, you know uh, some security incident or or any other this is the lead indicator like we make problems so this is the problem the solution that we offer is a centralized policy enforcement solution so every time you make a code change to an infrastructure as code file to your kubernetes yaml to your helm chart whatever you run a the tree test against it um, and it's a saas solution that holds a lot of uh, policies, which I will elaborate more regarding your question. And the second part is the scanner. Now, the scanner is open source. We do not send your files contents to our servers. We Sorry, but we don't want them. It is your contents and, and you should have them. We only, 
we, we provide the approach of a centralized enforcement solution. So you configure it once in our SaaS, and then the open source, which is very popular, we have more than 5,000 GitHub stars, it will pull the policy after you configure the uh, token, of course, yes? And it will run the tests that you configured, and then it will only report the results, the metadata to the cloud. And um, when you get started with the solution, you get 21 rules out of the box, which are like, I would call it the best sellers. They are, you know, suitable for most of the people. A memory limit, CPU limit, liveness probe, readiness probe, don't use the latest tag for Docker containers, security, uh, most common CVEs, um, really the, the best sellers. And then as you sign into the system, you can uh, choose to um, enable or disable the rules. The, the advantage in our solution, it is not like a classical security solution where you go like, scan this container. Is it good or bad? You get a response and that's it. Our system is more designed around, um, and this is why a lot of DevOps and SRE people actually operate it alongside DevSecOps people, is you can choose what works for you and you can enable and disable any policy you want and you can adjust it to your organization. And I've met people who are very opinionated that a CPU limit is bad for you and they don't want to have a CPU limit. And it's a whole discussion about the scheduler and why the CPU limit in Kubernetes don't work the way they want them to work. But it's okay. We give them the choice to do it. And secondly, you can configure all of our rules using uh, infrastructure as code. So really what happens is you configure the system that really scans infrastructure as code files in an infrastructure as code way. So it's an ongoing process. So you have a GitHub repo and you can open a pull request and, and modify the rules. And as you said, you can write custom rules. Um, so bringing it back to your question, I think that the, the really the go-to that we went is like taking all of the development standards and unfortunately 100 post-mortems that really made companies crash and incorporate all of those development standards into our solution. And, and actually we also have thousands of companies using it and we have a lot of contributors in our GitHub community. So actually people write custom rules and people submit them and, and it's a living, breathing thing. Super interesting. Um, again, you, know, you, you touched upon a number of other uh, uh, topics there that kind of probably lead on to and deserve its own conversation. But um, I'll try and summarize, or, or, or I want to just talk about two of those, right? You, you mentioned about out of the box kind of these uh, policies and tw um, at the moment it's 21. These um, policies, as you say, are kind of the, the popular... Uh, um, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for here? Popular kind of uh, um, most used bestsellers. Yeah, that's the word you use. Yeah, bestsellers. So, do they are they are they continuously maintained? Do they follow like a CIS benchmark industry or, or other industry standards, or or is the intent also to move towards that direction? And reason why I ask this is that. Um, I've come from an enterprise uh, and banking environment, uh, and even since I've joined HashiCorp, I've been talking to a number of uh, FSI organizations primarily, uh, where as an industry, uh, they are, there is this keen interest in looking 
towards more of the preventative controls policy as called, whether that's OPA or SNIKE or Sentinel policies. Um, but the the challenge that or the unintended consequences or challenges that come with that is the upfront investment in developing those policies in itself. So now you start seeing uh, as a pattern um, many organizations that are coming out with these out of the box CIS benchmark policies already de- developed for them. Therefore, and still having the feature for custom policies, but the idea or purpose being those become very um, company specific or organization specific and any kind of CIS benchmark or industry standards should be kind of used out of the box. Um, that's the first point. Um, and the second point I wanted to actually, you know, what, I don't want to derail. I'll, I'll come to the second point afterwards. But, so I wanted to, let's talk about this first point about this kind of out of the box policies. Um, you mentioned 21. So coming back to the intent and moving towards that direction, or do you not see yourself moving towards that direction at all? That is a great question. So, for example, uh, we have policy, uh, sort of like policy uh, packs, you could call it. So we have the NSA hardening guide recommended policies. And we have a lot of things that are like from the benchmarks and, and that are like ready to go, keys included, just, you know, scan it according to the NSA hardening guide for Kubernetes, for example. So so we do have it and, and, and it exists. And, and this is something that we offer. Um, but I have to say, so on the one hand, we provide out of the box a, a policies on that regard. But again, really, um, the solution allows you the flexibility of also configuring and adjusting it to your best needs and to, to what you want. Um, so yeah, you can choose and run like predefined policies that are from well-known, like set of rules and you can also have your own yeah and so i think so my question probably would be from your experience the demand you may see from enterprises are are they rather are the demands that you see or or pattern that may be that hey we love the flexibility of developing these policies but we don't want to invest too much time in there given that we actually want to focus firstly on these NSA standards and CIS, do you have these out of the box? Also, would you maintain them? Also, I'm ready to pay for an SLA driven, you know, for support for these policies. Are you seeing that kind of pattern from the industries? Yeah, absolutely. So we help our customers with writing custom policies. We help our customers with the different uh, uh, benchmarks and uh, let's call it the the well-known standards that they want. Um, so this is like one side, the, the more enterprisey side where we will help you, we'll write the policies for you, we'll help you do it. And there's the other side that I'm so excited about. You know, when I was 13 years old, I installed my first Linux distribution. It was Red Hat 6 and it blew my mind that, you know, it's not just Windows 3.11 it was, I think. And it's like, there's other things out there. And... And I really fell in love with open source. And, and really, one of the things that I'm really most, most you know, humbled by and that I'm really fascinated is that people come to our repository and they submit policy rules and they write their own packs and they write their own best practices. So it is also community-driven and people use things and they contribute them back to the community. Um, so so yeah. we have both sides that's spot on i, th- I think you, you, you're um spot on about the, that whole kind of community driven piece and 
really does come out to um, finding that balance between how much of that is obviously community uh, driven and how much of that would be, uh, or even both, right? Standards driven plus community driven. But, you know, it, it, as an organization, especially for a startup, it, it's understanding where where the investment needs to be made and clearly uh community driven would always be that kind of forefront right especially around that kind of building that community and and um distributed ownership so uh yeah 100% agree i want you to come back to that second point i was telling you about is the um you mentioned that you don't want to abstract too much for a developer to not realize that there may be a memory leak so there needs to be some sense of empowerment here so it 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 almost feels like the um that that a that yes there may be a cognitive load, but also at the same time we want to be able to provide these policies uh, that would be indicative of how you're doing things right or wrong. Um, but and then this sounds like you almost would promote that whole decentralized SRE culture, and the more we as well as abstract that it does take away or remove some of that kind of SRE culture, uh, delegated SRE culture uh, across um, uh, developers, which is an interesting take. And But the more uh, higher up you go to the organization, and I'm going to refer back to this report, right? The, that uh, state of uh, Kubernetes security report that Red Hat uh, produced. One of the things that, it, um, or one of the highlights, uh, it, it noted that there's a lack of investment from secu- in security rather, in Kubernetes security or cloud native security, uh, and being maybe one of the reasons of say misconfiguration or or of, of that whole issue here. Um, and that investment in security, it wasn't clear whether that investment in security meant education or tools or, or strategy, but it, it does highlight something that, you know, maybe it's worth another discussion altogether, but where is that investment should become whose budget does it come out from? Is it the CISO org's budget? You know, at which point I only restrict it towards the platform and policies control, wash my hands off. Thereafter, you know, it's the DevOps, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, the developers' uh, um, uh, concern ensuring that it, it is secure. But who's ac- the accountability? I, I feel like the 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 balance between distributed, say, SRE and ops, and um, centralized say accountability or centralized enforcement really blurs the line in not only from a um, financial investment perspective but also from a uh, ultimate accountability and liability perspective and i i feel when i'm speaking to more and more enterprise and organizations they are coming to that kind of discussion and conversation and i and i i i myself i'm not sure what the resolution of that would be or how would you kind of take it from there? But I'll be interested to understand your observation on that. Yeah, so look, in terms of, of the budget, I think that um, different organizations have different uh, sets. Uh, some uh, take the budgets from uh, security, some take the budgets from, you know, infrastructure, operations side, uh, you know, because misconfigurations can cause to, straight on like security hardcore problems, but they can also cause like availability, stability problems. And it can be sort of like a philosophical question. So let me, you know, let's make this interesting. So let me tell you a rule and I'll try to sell it to you on both sides. So uh, you must have a memory limit. So one side, I'll sell it to you. Let's say you're a DevOps SRE person. I'll go like, listen, you have developers, you're writing code. 
there might be memory leaks in it. And then if you don't have a memory limit, it can blow up your node and it's, it's going to cause an incident. Now, let's say you're the CISO. I was like, listen, you need to have a memory limit because someone can do a DOS attack. It's going to blow up your memory and then your node is going to run out of memory and it's going to be an incident. Now, <laughs> it's the same thing, right? It's, it's the same check, but it's two different sides. I think actually it's um <laughs> they actually I think I think you hit the nail on the head. When when we think about security, I think often a lot of people that I talk with forget what the pillars of security are, right? They 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 seem to have this idea that we're just talking about being hacked or data being leaked, right? And it goes beyond that, right? So just as a blanket reminder, when we're talking about security, these are the pillars we're talking about. We're talking about confidentiality, right? That's that's the first pillar, right? The second pillar is we're talking about availability. To compromise the security of a system can be to destabilize it so that it's no longer available. You haven't actually breached anything, but you've made it unavailable, right? That's a breach of security. And that's if you think about operations and DevOps, that's probably the area they're concerned with is how do we make sure that our platform is is up? How do we meet our SLAs and so on and so forth, right? So they have that security concern, right? The third pillar is integrity. So we think about the the uh, data. So if someone is able to breach your system, when it's not just taking the data or stealing the data. Sometimes it's manipulating the data to to you know to whatever effect it is that they desire, right? So with that kind of approach there, when we talk about the question that you just asked, the deal is like, who should pay for it? I feel like the question is a bit more nuanced than, you know, maybe a binary answer, this department or that department, right? Um, I feel like people need to understand the shared responsibility behind these pillars of security and ultimately, it doesn't actually matter who pays for it. All that matters is that we're sh- uh, equally accountable, right? You know, if if the availability of something is affected, it impacts us all, right? If the integrity or the confidentiality of something is threatened, it impacts us all as an organization. So I, I do think it's a bit more nuanced. I'm going to hand it over to Shimon because I know you have something to say. Yeah, so, you know, I want to touch on the point, you know, we talked about who's who's the, you know, who's buying and so on. And there is a point that is very important for me to emphasize. You know, we, we talked about enterprise side and, you know, HashiCorp is a very successful company, sells to all sides. But we are similar to Hashi in a way where you can always come to our website. You can get started for free. You don't need to talk to any salesperson. You don't need to do anything. You get the value first. You get the meat. And then if you want to continue and you want to get, I don't know, added features or increase the amount of workloads that you monitor and amount of configs that you scan and so on and so on and so on, then you're going to pay. And I think, number one, it's very different. It's very unique in the security landscape where we're like a border ops security, right? Border DevOps SRE security. Um, and But we believe in the same approach. If you look at Sneak, if you look at HashiCorp, it's, it's a bottoms up self-service, product-led growth motion. I'm not going and eating steaks with CISOs so they buy my product for three million. No offense. I'm like one, I want people to really see the value, try it, see that it's working well, that it's really solving their problem. And only then after they integrate it and use it and love it, only then we're going to start talking about money and we're going to start talking about 
increased adoption and so on. And I think that, that, that it's a really, it's a different world. I don't think that a CISO today can really enforce developers that write infrastructure as code for Kubernetes to like use certain tools. Like may, maybe they physically can, but, but it's really going to create a huge clash. And I think that today in the modern software development organizations that I see and the great security shops that I see, they work with the dev DevOps teams and they go like, listen, we want to make sure that our images are secure. We want to make sure that there are no misconfigurations. Go get the best tools for the job. And then the DevOps people, guess what? They don't want to book a demo. They want to brew install it and test it. <laughs> and this is how it works at the end. Yeah, I, I, both of you are spot on there. I, I think, you know, uh, Shimon, uh, earlier on when you made that example about it can be sold to both sides and it should be sold to both sides because at the end of the day, the responsibility lies with both sides, right? Which, you know, brings back to the point that Rob and I have always been talking about how security should not be seen as a vertical, uh, rather it needs to be a horizontal and uh, which comes back to Rob's uh, 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 Point about shared responsibility model um, and that whole distributed accountability and liability. Um, and take it back to kind of questioning really the whole CISO organization. And I, mean, I was speaking to one bank uh, at kind of CISO minus two level and where the, the question came up, uh, came about, about owning security tools and, and um, that conversation led to then essentially uh, agreeing that security should be owning security uh, patterns and not security tools, those toolings rather will be owned by uh, the that horizontal distributed organization. And again, I want to then come back to Shimon's recent example where we need to learn from these startups, right? And how is it that we can start, we talk about learning from these startups, talk about learning from these kind of uh, uh, edge uh, um, uh, technology that's been used, but also from a people and process perspective, we see so many changes. We see how the CISOs are working very closely with developers and where their concern is more around the pattern and the consumption pattern and let the ownership of everything else be distributed with that SRE slash DevOps. Um, and how is it that we can really bring that conversation back to enterprise? And just one last point I want to make is around kind of, yes, you're right, the CISO conversation would be uh, from an investment perspective. But the investment is not necessarily, not just about tools, right? Uh, investment in tools or investment in products, but is it the investment in training and the investment in, okay, for example, how much 20% of a sprint, of a developer, a developer sprint, should that be focused on security? If so, that's an investment that's coming from that business revenue organization that they need to make. How would they make that? Is that Again, it comes back to that shared responsibility model and, and, that, and accountability and liability because at the end of the day, that's still a monetary investment. And so those are my, my, my closing thoughts is that I feel like a lot of these stuff really still comes back to an organizational uh, thought process uh, and seems to be, as, well, very clearly and evidently is working in the startup world due to this agility. I think... Um... In terms of when I think about that that scenario that 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 Shimon laid out about when you'd actually sit down with a CISO, I think actually the problem is is different at that point now. Your problem isn't actually security. Your problem is scale and adoption, right? How do you scale the adoption 
within your organization to match kind of the scale of your business, right? Um, I, I think that's a, it's a, it's a totally different conversation. And I think it, this is why I love it when companies actually offer some of these security tools as open source, right? And I think if you start to operate operate at enterprise scale, then yeah, absolutely. Why why shouldn't you pay for that, right? But I think providing security by default is, in my opinion, the way to go, right? Which is why it's good to get these open source tools. But I do think when you get to that conversation with the CISOs, it's it's now about okay, the decision's already been made that this is where we want to make our investments, right? Um, we've made this decision because we trust our people, and our people have. They've explored different options, and this is the best fit for our business case, right? Um, so, how do we take this this thing and scale it to hundreds or thousands of developers or thousands of applications or whatever the the you know uh, measuring unit is in your organization, right? Uh, and I think really that's the conversation that that Shimon is going to sit down and have with with CISOs rather than almost trying to hard sell it. So the hard sell comes from the developer experience, right? It comes from the person who actually has to sit there and configure it, the person who has to sit there when they get an error and they're sitting there thinking, oh, how do I actually resolve that thing there? Is it giving me any clues? It's like, I don't know if people remember Terraform back in the day when you used to get error messages that didn't really tell you so much, right? Like, Terraform is so much better now. Like When something goes wrong, you get pointed in the direction so you can figure out what it is and go and fix it, right? But it's, it's stuff like that. That's where the hard sell is happening, right? So it's actually not happening uh, at dinner table. It's happening on the terminal, right? Um, and those are the kind of, in a weird way, two sides of the same coin, you know? If developers want to use something, then the company has to invest in it, right? But for the company to invest in it, they have to be convinced that the, the developers can adopt it at the scale that the business requires to deliver business value. That's my closing thoughts there. Um, I'm going to hand it over to Shimon uh, just to get any closing thoughts from you. I totally agree. I think that nowadays product-led growth and you know developer tools, DevOps tools, the new age security tools, it, it doesn't have to be this clunky thing that gets dropped on you from top-down security. And it's like, you need to use this. Why? Because we bought it for a million dollars. And it's the other way around. The conversation is, we have those threats, those challenges. Let's find the best tools. And this is why we are a open source backed, like our scanner is open source. This is why you need only one minute to get started. This is why we cater to the champion. And I think that organizations that are not going to acknowledge that, that are going to try to sell tools for you know, organizations the old way, I don't think it's the way. And for us, what we do, how we get people, we write about uh, misconfigurations. We educate people how to fix problems. No bullshit thought leadership, you know? For real, the meat, the meat. How, how do I set a memory limit? Why is it important? How do I make sure, how do I scan my cluster to see if I have workloads that do not have those limits? And I recently released a, a, a guide on to how to upgrade EKS to version 1.22 and how you can use the tree we have a kubectl plugin to actually scan it because one of the big issues and one of the um, really use cases that we also provide is helping you with deprecation. Because guess what? If you have workloads that are running APIs that are going to be removed, deprecated in the next version, after you finish this upgrade, it's bye-bye. You're not going to be able to run it again. So really, there are many, many aspects to that 
And I totally agree with you that uh, you need to have the awesome experience, the for real education and the real value for the DevOps and developers and engineers on how to solve problems. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's been a pleasure. I think we've touched on so many things. We, we could probably do another two or three episodes, even just based on some of the things that we didn't get to discuss today that we've kind of hinted at. Um, but, you know, um, from us to you, just want to say thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your time. This has been really insightful. Um, really enjoying uh, experimenting with Daytree. Um, so, yeah, keep it up. And uh, that's it from me. Um, Always a so pleasure. Much. Definitely. I- the, the insights have been so great and so much to learn from it. Right? And as, as Rob said, but we've touched on so many things that they, they all probably deserve its own episode in a sense. Um, so really on that basis, I'm looking forward to inviting you along to uh, future episodes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks. Definitely. Listeners, we'll catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to Keeping It Secure with your host, DevOps Rob, and DevOps a deal. Be sure to join us next time 